his big contribution to all this was that he asked this one question, and it was the first time anybody had ever asked this question. That is, what is the global condition, what is the global health of coral reefs, with the emphasis on global? And nobody had ever actually asked that. So everybody had been, you know, thinking about their own little personal reef where they were working, but nobody had actually said, well, yeah, but what about on a global, you know, even a regional scale, let alone a global scale? So that was uh, very significant because the first, after the, at the end of the first day of the symposium, we realized we couldn't answer the question because nobody had the data. Hello and welcome to Coastal Horizons, a podcast of Reef Check California. My name is Dan Schwartz, and I'm going to be taking you on a journey of what lies under the cliffs and beaches in the Pacific Ocean off the coast of California. We're part of the Reef Check Foundation, a global network of citizen scientist divers who are trained to survey nearshore reef and generate data about the health of the reef by the status of key indicator species. Our goal is to collect unbiased data, not perform advocacy. When I first got to Green Lake to do this show, I started thinking, where would I like to begin? And I thought, well, at the beginning. Reef Check California wasn't the beginning. The beginning actually happened some years ago as Reef Check, and the founder of Reef Check, Dr. Gregor Hodson, has been kind enough to come on to our program. Greg, welcome to Coastal Horizons. Great to be here. Greg, you have what could best be described as an unusual upbringing. Can you share some of that with our listeners? Yeah, well, I actually grew up on the East Coast and, you know, dealing with frozen winters in Boston. But I happen to be just very, very lucky because my parents were both marine biologists and they both liked the tropics. So we spent a lot of our cold Boston winters in the Bahamas or in, in Florida. So I got to uh, snorkel fairly early on, which was a lot of fun. My mom worked on sea anemones. Her claim to fame was that she was able to show that sea anemones can learn. And she was trying to get a paper published in a psychological journal. And the psychologists, you know, this is back in the 70s, they were just aghast and they refused to publish a paper <laughs> saying that a, let, an invertebrate, let alone a sea anemone with just a nerve net, actually could learn. And of course, all of this has been long since well supported, but uh, she had a tough time getting that, that first paper published. I think it was not until about 1982 that uh, it actually came out in print. And my dad was a shark specialist, and he was a chemophysiologist. And well, he was working over at the Lerner Marine Lab in the Bahamas, which was just an amazing facility at that time, trying to figure out for the Office of Naval Research how sharks found downed pilots and people who, when ships got blown up and there was blood in the water, how did the sharks actually find them? So he was doing all these cool experiments over there. And uh, he'd often ask me to serve as shark bait for his experiments and to take some pictures at the end of the when they were, the experiment was involving separating various blood compounds to see which ones the sharks responded to and how did they zero in on where the information was coming from, the blood that was in the water. So it was a wonderful early life. I was very, very lucky. And then to top all of that off, when I graduated from high school, my dad said, uh, you know, I, I know you want to go to college. And of course, you know, we're both professors. We want you to go to college too. But how about if you uh, serve as my assistant 
on a, a shark research project, which uh, will take us around the world for a year instead of going directly into university. And of course, for a young, young kid at that time, that was like, yeah, where are we going? Yeah. The cool thing was, is that I I was able to go diving in a number in about, well, over 30 different countries around the world and learn about sharks and and meet lots of cool people who are working on sharks all over the world. But at that time, so we're going back to 1974, the reefs were, were still in amazing condition. And so going to places like Palau and I mean, who, who would have thought about going to Mauritius uh, at that time? What it did, it, it gave me this amazing worldview of what were reefs like at that time, which really, you know, most professors, even at that time, they were working at uh, Discovery Bay in Jamaica, or they were working at, uh, you know, a particular marine lab like my dad was in, in Bimini. And they, they didn't have the time or the, or the money to be able to travel to all these different all these different places. And so there were very few people who had that kind of a, a, a worldview of what was, what was the state of, of coral reefs at that, uh, at that wonderful time when they were in amazing condition. That was a wonderful experience for me. And then as soon as I finished at UCSB, I joined the Peace Corps with my roommate from freshman year, Mike Ross, and we went to work for the Bureau of Fisheries in the Philippines and by chance as well, it was a coincidence that we had the first, we had an International Coral Reef Symposium in the Philippines while we were there in 1981 or 82. And we were able to present our findings there and get to know lots and lots and lots of the top coral reef biologists from all over the world. And then we did something very silly. One day, you know, there was only about 300, 400 people, I think, at that symposium. But we put up a little note on the bulletin board and said, anybody wants to come diving, come down and let us know we have a house on the beach in Cebu because we had this little bamboo shack on the beach down there. And of course, it ended up that about 30 of the world's top coral reef biologists ended up coming down to our house, camping out because we only had a few beds in there. And so people sharing beds, you know, all spread all over the place. And we just had an amazing few days after the coral reef symposium, getting to know all the wonderful people that came down and were able to dive with us. That helped me out so much later when I was first thinking about doing reef check. And I published this paper about uh, the effects of uh, logging the sedimentation on reefs and what was going to be more valuable in this place called El Nido, that at that time there were just a few German backpackers coming through. Basically, I, I made the first ridges to reef study that had ever been done and actually tracked the sediment from erosion plots that I built up in the mountains and tracked that actual sediment down into the rivers, re-measured it in the rivers, and then back when it hit the, down below, when it came out from the river mouth and settled onto the reef. And it, it was able to show, you know, what the damage was when there was too much sediment coming down from particularly the logging roads, the exposed earth, and also was able to work with an economist named John Dixon, who was at that time at the East West Center and later at the World Bank. And we were able to show that economically, the, the value of the tourism was likely going to be much more valuable than the value of the logs, even though they're very high grade, it's a hardwood, it's yeah. like an ebony, they call it apitong. And so in the end, it, as it turns out, we vastly underestimated, we thought we might be overestimating the tourism value at the time. And we vastly underestimated because it's become, of course, the most popular tourism site really in the Philippines. And you know everybody's going down to El Nido now to, to see all the beautiful islands. 
anyway, after that, I ended up uh, working in Hong Kong as a environmental consultant and as a magazine editor for Dow Jones. So I had a little bit of exposure to PR as a magazine editor, which was helpful later on. And then working as an environmental consultant, I was in charge of a staff of about 40 people at a British company. And there was a huge project because they were building the new air, at that time, new airport at Cheplak Kok, a little island off of uh, Hong Kong. And we needed to do every kind of possible uh, environmental monitoring that you can imagine. So we were doing fishery surveys. We were doing soft seabed benthic surveys. We were, of course, doing coral reef surveys. There are some very nice coral reefs up in the Northeast. And one of our environmental impact assessments resulted in the first time in the history of Hong Kong that a government project was stopped because of environmental reasons. And it was because we had said that these coral reefs on the northeast side of Hong Kong in a place called Mears Bay were actually in pretty good shape and looked pretty nice and uh, lots of species. And we thought that dredging for sand and creating lots and lots of sedimentation was probably going to kill off a bunch of them and we could probably get sand from some other places. So the head of the uh, civil engineering department at that time, who was an Australian, agreed and uh, said, yeah, let's not, uh, let's not dredge sand up in Mears Bay. Let's leave those reefs alone. It was very gratifying to see that, that those reefs have been preserved and are, in fact, uh, still in good shape today. Greg, if I can just ask a question. Was there anything you learned while doing these surveys that will become truly valuable when you began to design Reef Check? The one thing that proved to be very, very useful later on were the soft seabed surveys, because for these soft seabed surveys, we would do some trawling on the one hand, but then we would send down grab samples and take grab samples and you get a big lump of mud and then you run it through these sieves and you get lots and lots of worms. And the soft seabed ecologist figured out a long time ago that it really wasn't that much fun to count all those worms, especially after they'd been soaking in formalin for a while, and you're sitting there in the lab with all the hot lights and the formalins coming up and in your face, and you know it's just not that much fun to count thousands of worms. So they came up with the idea of let's use indicator species. So they chose a few select worms that were indicators of you know certain kinds of pollution, certain kinds of impacts, and so they used those indicators, presence or absence and abundance, as a way of deciding. Uh, whether or not that particular muddy, sandy environment was in good health. And so going through that, I actually took that philosophy and for the first time applied that to coral reefs as part of the design work when I started to design Reef Check the first time. So that was a very important educational lesson to go through to help me to design Reef Check. Meanwhile, there was a professor down in Florida at the University of Miami, Dr. Robert Ginsburg, who worked in the field of carbonate geology. Bob was studying the corals off Florida, taking cores, and thought the current decline of some of the reefs he had been hearing about was just a natural ebb and flow. However, he was looking through the glasses of geological time. One of the things Bob enjoyed doing was bringing minds together, and in 1993 he convened a meeting entitled Forum on the Global Aspects of Coral Reefs, Health, Hazards, and History. I'm reading this from an article in a publication called Reef Encounters. The article goes on to say, Bob posed 11 questions that no one could effectively answer, but the following five provoked particular discussions. I have to add that when I shared these questions, we almost had to laugh because the questions now seem so academic. 
However, at its time, when you needed hard data to back up your response, they were visionary. Are reefs worldwide in decline? How will global warming affect reefs? How can natural versus anthropogenic changes, that's science jargon for man-made, be identified? Can reef reserves protect coral communities? Why don't conservation regulations work? This became known as the Ginsburg Agenda. His big contribution to all this was that he asked this one question, and it was the first time anybody had ever asked this question. That is, what is the global condition, what is the global health of coral reefs, with the emphasis on global? And nobody had ever actually asked that. So everybody had been you know, thinking about their own little personal reef where they were working, but nobody had actually said, well, yeah, but what about on a global, you know, even a regional scale, let alone a global scale? So that was uh, very significant because the first, after the, at the end of the first day of the symposium, we realized we couldn't answer the question because nobody had the data. We talked about setting up what I called Rambo teams, just teams of scientists to be able to get out and just go out and do surveys in all these, you know, a selection of different places and try and figure out what's going on and just do a real quick and dirty sort of a survey. And then by the end of the symposium, we all realized that somebody needed to set up a, a monitoring system that could be used on a global basis. And so that was where the idea for uh, the global monitoring program came from. And out of that came GCRMN and the Global Coral Reef Monitoring Network that Clive Wilkinson set up and ran for so many years. And at the same time, that's where ReefCheck came from. And then at the same time, because he was such an entrepreneur, the, the Ringling Brothers side of, of Bob was, well, let's have an international year of the reef. And so everybody thought, well, that's a cool idea. And so, you know, we're sitting around drinking a few beers after the symposium, and that came out of one of those sessions Noah really liked the idea, and they were just in the process of setting up their coral reef program at NOAA, and so it was really good time for that, and ICRI had been set up for like a year or two at that point, the International Coral Reef Initiative, so there were certain, a, a number of initiatives that had been already in the works and, and or being set up, and so it was very good timing for that, and Bob said, well, Greg, you're doing all this monitoring over in Hong Kong set up a global monitoring program. And um, I'm like, yeah, sure, why not? <laughs> <laughs> and so in all of my spare time as, a, uh, as an environmental consultant, you know, working, working long hours, I, uh, I carved out the time to draft out a protocol, a very scientific protocol for scientists to monitor coral reefs all over the world using the same method. And I sent this out to... 20 or 30 people to be reviewers and to get feedback on and, you know, some really big names in monitoring at the time, such as uh, Ricky Grigg and uh, Jim Maragos, of course, Clive, and, um, and many, many, many others, you know, a group of the French, the French scientists, Charlie Baron, and, you know, lots and lots of different people, the Mi you know, other people from Miami. And, and one of the people who got a hold of it was Sue Wells, who was work, had been working for, I had met her in the Philippines when I was in the Peace Corps because she was doing a program for BBC on blast fishing in the Philippines. 
And uh, her comment was, Greg, we have so many scientific protocols. We don't really need another scientific protocol, but we need to get this, use this International Year of the Reef to get the general public involved. Why not make it so that volunteers could do this? And so I thought, well, that's a pretty good idea. You know, I'll try and do that. Bob declaring the first International Year of the Reef wasn't just some flippant comment, like declaring a National Cupcake Week. Over 225 organizations and 50 countries and territories participated, and over 700 articles and papers and magazines focusing on coral reefs were generated. Hundreds of scientific surveys were undertaken. It also included the creation of ReefCheck, which, in its first year, conducted 350 surveys in 31 countries. So I took the original protocol and I... I set up some criteria for selecting indicators and uh, basically, you know, it had to be something that was super easy to identify, couldn't be confused with anything else, had to be a high high economic value, so it's a target for fishermen, and I wanted to include both invertebrates and fish. And to make it doable for volunteers, I kept it to about 10 organisms for each group, so 10 fish. And in general, they were family level instead of species level. There's a few species that are so unique that we could use species level, but for most of them, they were family level. And uh, so it was easy to train a volunteer who was not a professional marine biologist and have confidence that the data would not be confused. Greg, with all sorts of marine life on the reefs, how did you come up with which species would become indicators? Well, it's a very, very good question. And there were several categories, a, a list of categories, which we used and actually published several different papers. One was called Coral Reef Monitoring and Management using, using Reef Check, which was published in, in Integrated Coastal Management. And basically, the idea was that you're trying to find an organism, choose an animal that is as broadly distributed as possible. So you haven't, you're going to have hopefully some global indicators. What's a good indicator as an invertebrate that indicates overfishing in anywhere and on any reef in the world. And so you'd say, okay, well, a spiny lobster is, a, is probably the highest value organism that anybody could get off a reef to eat. And they should be found on every coral reef in the world, basically. So that was a perfect indicator from the perspective of you could compare it with any reef in the world that if there were a lot of lobster on that reef, it probably wasn't overfished. And if there weren't any lobster, it might be one reason might be that it was overfished. And so that would give you one data point in terms of trying to put this list of indicators together and, and uh, try and analyze to figure out what is the status, what is the health. It's like, you know, when you go to the doctor, the, the doctor might take your temperature, your mom might take your temperature and figure out whether you have a fever or not on a reef. We were trying to do the same thing, but you, know, you can't take a reef's temperatures. And so on the, on the fish side, uh, obviously, grouper are found, the family of grouper are found all over the world, and uh, they are also one of the number one fish that people want to fish out of a reef. So if you're looking for an indicator of overfishing, a grouper is a really good, a really good value global indicator. Uh, we also put a, a size limit on, on grouper because there are certain grouper that don't ever get any bigger than about 20 centimeters. So we actually put in a 30 centimeter size limit for grouper as, uh, you know, if it's, if it's any 
less than than uh, 30, we'll, uh, we'll not, we're not going to count it. And uh, we're looking for group over 30 centimeters because that would be the real proof in the pudding indicator of overfishing on, on coral reefs. And then we worked our way down through invertebrates and the fish and selected a number of different Indo-Pacific indicators. And you know, some of these things just don't go around the world. So for example, a giant clam is a great indicator of invertebrate overfishing in the Indo-Pacific, but it doesn't occur in the Caribbean. So you can't use the, it's not a global indicator, but it's an excellent regional indicator. And why is it such a good indicator? Well, people love to eat giant clams. And why are they called giant is, of course, because they get to almost two meters high. I have a picture of a lady sitting inside a giant clam, and they've been harvested since years and years, you know, hundreds and hundreds, if not a thousand years ago, because if you really want to see big giant clam shells, you can go into any big uh, church built in the Middle Ages, and the, the holy water bowls at the front of the church are invariably giant clam shells, and they're pretty big ones too. So they've been fished for a very long time for both their, just to eat them, and also as the, the shell has value as a beautiful thing to make buttons, and just as, you know, as a curio to put on your shelf or to put on the wall. They're just so, so pretty. So that was the fish and the invertebrates. And then, of course, we, uh, on the tropical side, we do a, a, a substrate transect where we, we record all of the key organisms that occupy the substrate in the tropics. So that would include both soft and hard corals as separate categories. Algae, of course, being a really important indicator for phosphate and nitrate, that is, you know, pollution from either sewage or from uh, fertilizer from land. And then we also uh, use sponges, which are another important indicator of what is the condition of the reef. And, uh, you know, some of these reefs that are incredibly overfished now around the world become dominated by algae or dominated and or dominated by sponges. In fact, I've been working quite a bit in Haiti over the last few years, and uh, I actually by chance, only recently found out that I ended up in Haiti in 1983, the same year that Jacques Cousteau first visited Haiti. And he jumped in the water and, and he said, hmm, no fish. This is boring. But wow, those are huge sponges. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and Haiti is actually a wonderful place if you're a sponge biologist because they have just huge, huge sponges everywhere. And it may partially be a result, you know, compared to other places in the Caribbean, it may be partially a result of this overfishing that's gone on because, of course, some fish, for example, angelfish, really enjoy eating sponges and so do turtles. And the overfishing has been so dramatic in Haiti and for so long that it's likely that's had an influence on allowing the sponges. And, of course, algae has taken over a lot of the reefs there. Okay, so you have a game plan. What was it like to actually implement? I chased uh, a lot of people that you know, I'd known from my travels and asked them to volunteer to train a team and supervise them, make sure the data got done, the training got done properly, the data was recorded properly. And so we did actually get all this participation from 30 countries. It was the first global survey of coral reefs that anybody had ever done using a standardized method. Greg, was it hard to find people to do the training? 
problem, as you know, with scientists is every scientist became a scientist because they didn't want to play on a team. They wanted to take the basketball into the corner and see how high it bounces. And so getting scientists, you know, hurting scientists is, is like, is the hardest thing besides cat. It was amazing that over the years we were able to convince enough people that the educational value of this protocol was, was high enough that it's worth them giving professional scientists, academics, it was worth them giving some of their time to do it. And plus, I think they found it was a lot of fun, you know, training young people, you know, college students or whatever to do something like Reef Check, it's a lot of fun to do because you're introducing people probably something that's new for them and just watching them, just like you guys training Reef Check California, it's just an amazing thing to watch the transformation in people and how they enjoy. And suddenly they're seeing so many things that they never saw before and they're seeing connections and they're understanding how these animals are related to each other. It just opens their mind and opens their eyes so much. And we regularly fail PhDs in Reef Check Tropical all the time because typically they're also very narrowly focused on one particular group of animals. And so forcing them to, they're a coral guy and forcing them like me to learn about fish, it's kind of fun for them to learn something different as well. There are very, very few coral reef scientists who are good at all the different organisms, both invertebrates, algae, and corals. And so it forces them to learn a sort of a a packaged amount of information about those so that they also, it opens their minds as well. And so that also, I think, helped people who participated and they started to support it. But despite that, even amongst my colleagues from University of Hawaii, several of them came out. When it became time that the, the government was potentially going to give reef check money to do monitoring instead of the scientific community, that became a big issue. And they started criticizing reef check, several of them, like crazy. Fight. And even, even today, there are many people who just um, you know, will, will not accept reef check data because they don't believe it. They just, they just simply don't believe. It's a bit of an insult to, I think, some scientists' egos that you can say, look, I can spend a third of the money that you're spending on your work, and I can come up with a pretty good answer on how healthy is a reef without spending all that money on every single reef. And what we always argued at GCRMN, Clive and I, was, look, you know, we need all of these different methods. You take a quick and dirty look with Reef Check, and if there's a problem, send in a group of scientists and figure out what the details are. But it, it, it was a hard sell with many people. And even today, many scientists will, despite the fact that some of the, you know, over the last 20 years, we've had some of the top names in, uh, in science publishing using our data. Some scientists just refuse to accept that it's actually reliable data. So it is a funny situation to be in. The results were so striking that I felt it would be important to come out and make an announcement immediately we announced it was the first time anybody come out and said, there is a global coral reef crisis. Most of these high-value species are missing from shallow reefs, and overfishing is the major problem on coral reefs right now. It's much bigger than pollution and sedimentation. And making the point that, you know, reefs that are near big cities or population centers, they may be affected by pollution, but most of the reefs in the world are not located near major cities. They're far from them. And so they're probably not being very affected by pollution or sedimentation unless they're very close to the coast where they can be affected by sedimentation. Of course, I'd done my PhD on sedimentation effects on coral reefs. And so I made a press conference 
And so we got a really nice turnout with the help of the university PR department. Unfortunately, it was very close to the time when Lady Di died in her accident, Lady Diana. And so it did get buried fairly quickly after that. Greg, if I can stop you for a moment. I was just thinking that in those times, you couldn't just get Wi-Fi on a remote island from your hammock under a couple of coconut trees. Those islands often run on diesel generators, so even electricity is sporadic. Collecting global data must have been a challenge. There was a British guy at the British consulting company I was working at called Vinny's Consultants. He knew how to program really well, and so he was able to program our computers to use the internet. You had to program it on your own at that time. There was just some code out there. It was, you know, pre-even internet in the box that came along a few years later. The initial planning phases that we were doing were done because the internet was available. And I've often thought about publishing a scientific paper just stating that this was the first major global survey that was enabled by the internet because it was. I mean, there, there, it would have been impossible to do it without the internet. And we had no money. It was done for free, the entire thing. Everybody was a volunteer. Everybody was just doing it because it was the first international year of the reef. And the internet had just gotten going and enough people had it that we could communicate with them in, in various different parts of the world. And they would go to an internet center. You know, somebody had an internet station set up, they could go there and receive emails and, and do it that way. But it was just, it had just gotten started. So it is a very important point. So meanwhile, 1998 was the first global bleaching event. So here we had our network set up and we've got the first global bleaching event. I was working in Vietnam at the time and it was like diving amongst tombstones. I remember standing with a group of scientists in um, Townsville, Australia, the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority, and there was a news conference, and uh, they're saying, so guys, uh, there's all these reefs are bleaching all over the world. You know, what are we going to do about it? And we're all kind of looking at each other going, hmm, that's a really good question. <laughs> and, uh, of course, I'm saying, well, we're monitoring it to find out, you know, what we're actually losing and dealing with here. And, of course, at that time, what we were losing were thousands, lots of thousand-year-old corals, the big parietes, these big bombies they call them in Australia, or, you know, big mound head corals that were um, 30 feet, 10 meters across. We lost lots and lots of the biggest corals in the world in that first global bleaching event. So we were getting videos and pictures from all over our network and, of course, had a bigger network by that point. And so we're able to track that bleaching event and published a couple of papers about uh, that with GCRM and with Clive Wilkinson and uh, putting the whole package together about what had happened with that first global bleaching event. So it was great that we had our network out there. Moving along in history, 2002 was another notable year for ReefCheck. It was the second Earth Summit, also known as Rio Plus 10, which was a United Nations Conference on Environmental Development. Attended by more than 22,000 people from all over the world, it focused on sustainable development. Most of the agreements reached at the 2002 Earth Summit were not national treaties, but involved partnerships between communities, businesses, and governments from all over the world. Basically, it was a lot of fun because it was in Johannesburg, which I had visited previously with my dad when we were working on sharks together. 
So I had some contacts there. And we also had a reef check team, uh, the South African Underwater Ecological Society, who were like, you know, what do you want us to do? So there's all these closed sessions at these meetings where the ambassadors and the diplomats meet to discuss what are we really going to do moving forward with environmental issues with respect to our governments. And so little peons like the director of ReefCheck was not <laughs> invited to those meetings. They're completely closed to, to diplomats. But because I had the local crew there, we were able to sneak in and put our reports on, on the desks of every single representative from every country that was meeting there because they had access to their buddies to the meeting rooms. And so everybody was able to, to see that. In addition, a film had come out at that point. McGillivray Freeman Films had made one of their amazing IMAX films on the coral reef crisis based on the, based on in Fiji and Tahiti. And what was going on, they sort of, it was following a fisherman from Fiji and how this was affecting his life. So it's this incredible IMAX film. We were able to get permission to use to actually premiere the film at the meeting and invited, of course, all these diplomats and everybody in a very large IMAX theater and play this thing in, on a you know, humongous IMAX screen, which had far more impact you know, probably than our report did. But uh, we're able to, again, hand out the flyers and brochures, the executive summary of the report, which is what a diplomat really wants to read to know what's going on. And so we believe that we had a pretty significant impact because they finally started including coral reefs, which had really not been talked about before that at these meetings. You know, most international general environmental meetings were not talking about coral reefs. So that was a significant, with the help of my local team, we were able to get this in front of the right people and have that go in. And, and many of them commented to me at the time, you know, the, the representative from, from the Seychelles, that this is the most meaningful thing between the movie and this report. This is, you know, a really, really good way of getting this information out. And so the groups like the small island developing states were able to use that information to really push coral reefs to the top of the agenda, which had never happened before. It was so kind of uh, McGillivray Freeman to allow us to show the film, the, the, you know, premiere the film there because they hadn't released it yet. So it was, you know, out of their normal cycle, but they're great guys and super environmentalists uh, at McGillivray Freeman. So they've done a lot of great things over the years. And of course, Craig, our Craig, young Craig Schumann was featured in the film. He was uh, featured uh, doing a little training down in Tahiti. So that was a nice cameo for, for, for Craig. The name of the film is Coral Reef Adventures. You can find their wonderful IMAX movies at mcgillivrayfreeman.com. Craig Schumann is mentioned because he went on to be one of the founders of Reef Check California. I think we're at a good stopping point for today's podcast. Stay tuned for more podcasts. Future episodes will cover not just our research, but also amazing research that is happening at the various local marine labs, Moss Landing, Bodega, and a new one up north in Noya Harbor. I also hope to be sharing various people that support us to make it all happen. People like boat captains and harbor masters. They have great stories to tell. Also, if you like what we're doing, we are a 501 nonprofit, and any support will be warmly received. Find us on the web at reefcheck.org. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you.